Choke points. Let's go. Fake Ivy. Does it work as a graffiti deterrent? Could it be the solution to the I-5 eyesore? Chris asked the only Washington city to try this idea, and uh, here are the results. And Dave, I'm the only guy that will go this far for you, go to bat for you, to find out the answers you want. I appreciate it. (laughs) I know how embarrassing it must have been, but go ahead. Well, when I went at every turn and the doors were slamming in my face, yeah, of course. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, City of Tacoma, like every other city in America, has been looking for innovative ways to combat graffiti for years. But no one has found that magic bullet that can end it. But Tacoma did go outside the box a few years ago, and it installed the fake ivy you've been talking about in a handful of spots. After visiting a city in California, Tacoma entered into a two-year contract in 2017 to buy the ivy, install it, and give it a chance. I sat down with uh, Ray Bailey, the Public Works Division Manager in Tacoma this week, and he says the I- uh, city bought two different types of ivy. We had what we called the panels, which was a one by one foot panel of ivy, and then we had individual strands of ivy as well. Tried both of them in various areas throughout the city to kind of mixed reviews. Some of it was really good, and some of it um, didn't work as well as we had hoped. So the panels didn't do as well as the strands of individual ivy because the panels are just applied to the concrete, and Bailey says they just became another flat surface to paint and other things. They could be easily ripped off, or unfortunately, they were actually set on fire on a couple of the locations. Uh, So we probably stick with with more of the individual strands and kind of give the... My crew's the creative liberty of, of making I, fake ivy look like real ivy. Yeah, and I and you can see the pictures at mynorthwest.com. I showed them to you. The, the panel yeah. ones end up, basically, it's like laying a carpet down around the outside. So it's flat, and it, uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised that they burned them. You uh, were? Well. Come on. Yeah, well, I you don't know. You remember being a kid? Yeah, but I don't. I don't remember burning things like that. Well, but that yeah, is a problem. Down. They need to make it fireproof. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, and it probably just melted. You yeah. know, they burned and melted, and probably didn't smell all that good. Uh, but the fake ivy strands had their own issues. We've had a couple of the strand areas get tagged in the last year or two, but for the most part. Everything that we put up by by the strands is 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 doing its job. Tacoma was planning on continuing the fake Ivy project after the two year contract was up, but guess what? That ran right into the pandemic, and fake Ivy didn't really make it onto the priority list mm. during the pandemic. But Bailey told me the city's actually looking at starting the project up again. The old vendor though is out of business, and he also said fake Ivy is ridiculously expensive. An individual strand was. $4.60 a linear foot. The one by one panels was $9.90 a square foot. So it, it's fairly expensive. But that, and that, once again, that's in $2017. So I don't know what it would cost today. In bulk, though? You can get a better yeah, four dollars. This is an you invasive species. It grows for free. <laughs> You're basically somebody... buying a rug. Yeah. <laughs> so think about find it. Find somebody yeah. who frequents craft stores. They'll find you a better deal. Yeah. So anyway, I asked Bailey what if it would work like in on mass in large mm-hmm. areas like up and down I five, and he thought it might be a little too cost prohibitive to do that. Uh, installing the fake ivy on the high walls requires heavy equipment, road closures, a lot of labor, and there's also a concern that attaching something to the concrete could impact strength or durability. But as Tacoma has shown, fake ivy can work. 
but maybe in only small doses. I see. I don't see why you need heavy equipment. On the I-5 wall, it's all accessible from above. You just drape it over the side. Well, with, well, with the the fake eye, right. But if you use the paneling you yeah, know, well, the, in order to get there, you no, would, if the pan, I, I, I withdraw my suggestion for paneling if it's if it's uh, uh, Not flammable. fireproof. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> but the fake strands look pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So can't they make them out of what do you what would you make fiberglass? Like, could you make them out of that? I mean, nylon. I'm sure there's yeah. probably well, some nylon would melt. Nylon would melt. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like I'm looking for a material that would be. I mean, you could use plastic, but I'm sure there's nope, probably some melts. environmental issues with that um, breaking off. And it off fades. And, you don't want it to be unattractive too, because sometimes no. that plastic ivy, if exposed to the sun, kind of right. turns into this muted green that doesn't look natural. So yeah, well, you want it to look uh, natural. But right. I'm glad, well, I'm glad they tried it, and so it wasn't a complete failure. No. Not at all. I mean, the strands seem to work, uh, and they only put it up in a couple, of, a handful of places. They did actually work with the Department of Transportation on the 705 off ramp. Uh, they did some. They wrapped some of the columns there, uh, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's it's in the mix now. Mm-hmm. At least in Tacoma, it's had some limited success. So yeah, your idea. I think if this were an episode of MythBusters, I would say uh, <laughs> it works. It's not a myth, so that myth is busted. You can do it. Excellent. Well, thank you for checking that out. Certainly. Yes. Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien with Dave Ross and Chris Sullivan as well. Uh, you- The other day on the show, we were talking about another House bill having to do with child care, and it would offer a tax rebate to companies that help employees with the cost of child care. There is an alternative alternative bill or companion bill, House Bill 2322, proposed by Representative Tana Sen of the 41st District, including Mercer Island. She joins us now to talk more about how this might work with Bill, I think it's 1716, Uh, Do they go along together or are they different? Yeah, thank you so much for uh, focusing on this important issue of childcare and the role that business can play. Uh, This is an alternative, a a different perspective um, on how to ensure that business is part of the solution in providing childcare for uh, their employees. So this would, uh, in essence, incentivize um, businesses or require benefits businesses that are benefiting from a tax break from the state to provide childcare to their employees. What companies would this include? Well, right now, a variety of companies get tax breaks. Obviously, the biggest one we think about is a Boeing or um, other companies like that. But whether it's they're generally in categories like aerospace, or um, maybe another high tech or uh, sometimes certain um AI or areas, hydrogen or areas where we're trying to support that industry that might be under, um, that might have some special uh, additional concerns. And so we, or that we want to think grow in our state. And so it's those kinds of companies, but really focusing on companies that have employees who are making more than $250,000 Uh, annually so that it's a progressive approach as well. So we don't want to target those small companies that are maybe just getting off the ground with lower paid um, workforce, but really, uh, again, helping with the tax code and fairness, making sure that it applies to employees uh, making over $250,000. And then those companies would um, have to provide childcare. So this is not a a rebate of the B&O tax to defray the cost of childcare. This is, you're saying, this is an expectation we have of these companies which are already receiving tax breaks from the state. They 
uh, are morally bound to provide this kind of affordable child care. Exactly. Uh, it's a value statement that we're saying that um, child care is so important for businesses so that parents can get to work and businesses rely on those workers. And so let's have it all integrated. Um, so it's a so integration. It's a win win. Uh, businesses help employees with child care. Businesses get employees um, and that helps more thriving economy. Correct me if I'm wrong. This would be providing child care at companies where employees make more than 200, 250,000 a year. Can't those individuals already afford child care? Yeah, thank you for the detail. So first of all, um, we know that a lot of companies can't provide child care. And frankly, it's a, it's a complicated business and, um, and with the skilled workforce. So we don't want companies having to provide child care because not every Starbucks or, you know, small uh, location is going to be able to provide child care. They need to support their employees. So they can do that in a variety of ways. Some places do have on campus child care, but most often maybe a company will have a benefit, um, some matching funds for uh, their employees or help pay directly the expenses of childcare, or if they don't have any of those, paying into the Fair Start for Kids Act fund, which is a big childcare fund that um, focused on uh, on providing childcare. So again, companies wouldn't have to provide it; they just have to support their employees in some way. Forty first District Representative Tana Sen, Tana, thank you very much. Thank you both for having me. Time for your daily dose of kindness. It is brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. One Taylor Swift fan had the time of her life at the Buffalo Bills-Kansas City Chief matchup on January 21st. Eight-year-old Ella Piazza, a devoted Swifty from Rochester, New York, arrived at Highmark Stadium in Orchard Park with a sign she wanted to show her favorite singer. As Piazza approached the luxury box where Taylor Swift was sitting, she got an unexpected boost from Jason Kelsey, the brother of the 12-time Grammy winner's boyfriend, Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. Piazza told NBC Today's show Savannah Guthrie and Hoda Kotb about how the magic moment came to be and how she was the mastermind herself and knew it would happen all along. Jason um, went out of the suite, um, also got the girl next to us, and then um, came back came over here and then he picked me up and then I saw Taylor. What was it like (laughs) when you saw Taylor in real life? It was like amazing. (laughs) Did you think you were going to see her? Um, yeah. I heard, Ella, that actually last week you told all your friends, I'm going to meet Taylor Swift at the game. You knew. Yeah. Why did you think that? Because, um, I was thinking positive, but some of my friends weren't that positive. She manifested that moment. Piazza showed Swift how her now famous homemade sign, it's Buffalo Bills plus Taylor Swift, best first game ever. She says the moment will live in her memory forever. Piazza thanked the shirtless Kelsey for making that moment possible. <laughs> you remember that game when he took off his shirt and he I, was all over the place. I, I'm sorry I missed that no? one. Okay. I'm sure I could find it online. Somewhere. That was a wild game, but that was the one. <laughs> Seattle's Morning News and now joining us from the Gene Ursula Show, which starts at 9. Here he is, G. Scott. I got a name for y'all. Yeah? Mike McDonald. Yeah, no, well, oh. yeah, that that's the head coach. <laughs> you know, again, I just want everybody to know, every single morning, you guys are my go-to Aww, for news. Not just nice. be. Here's the thing. Not just because I work with y'all. 
because, uh, well, I won't keep keep going on that one. Um, I just love listening to y'all. Y'all like the Sesame Street of news. Oh, that's you feel nice. me? No, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, you just, you She's really, you, you, you break it down. My Elmo? Yeah. I feel like I'm Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> you know who you are. Depends on the interview. I say I'm Grover. That's who I always feel like, because I'm always kind of not really sure if I'm coming or going. Yeah. And so. who's Dave? Big Bird? I'm Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> you, you, know, you know Dave's Big Bird. Dave is Big Bird. He's yeah. Big Bird. Snuffleupagus, maybe. Would, would y'all want to talk about the new coach? Yeah, the white smoke went up from the Seahawks chimney, so who is it? <laughs> That's a Catholic reference. Oh, okay. I had to, I didn't know where it was going. I didn't know. That's, that's, I was as, like, that's as current as my references get. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. I nearly fell out of my chair this morning mm. when I heard Mike McDonald's just 36 years old. He's 36. What? Yeah. Strikingly handsome. Stellar I'm guy. such an old lady now. Articulate. Well spoken. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's 36. Young guy. Speaking of youth, let me get into it. Mike McDonald is the guy I believe that the Seattle Seahawks wanted. He's also the guy that a lot of fans wanted. So first, let's just say this as congratulations. They got the guy. Mm. So who is the guy? Well, he is the first Seahawks head coach who has never been a head coach at any level since the first Seattle coach, Jack Patera, 1976. That's right. He is also one of the youngest. He's the youngest coach by seven years. So what's going on with him? He, he was a defensive coordinator uh, for the Ravens. Before that, he was a defensive coordinator with Jim Harbaugh at the University of Michigan. So really, where does he come from? He comes from the Harbaugh tree. Harbaugh is now starting to have a tree a little bit. Um, I think that he's going to come here, and we're going to see what happens. But right now, Colleen, there is a youth movement that has been going on across the league for the last seven or eight years. Thank you, Dave. And that is, let's go back to when Sean McVay was hired. Sean McVay is 38 years old. Wow. They hired, the Rams hired him when he was 30. Wow. Yes, right? So you got that. He's 30. Kyle Shanahan, when he was hired with the San Francisco 49ers, he was 36. And why is this? Is it because they're looking for fresh eyes, fresh blood, new perspective? Because I think, if I may take so many liberties, and I don't know too much about the NFL, but it seems like uh, an old boys club, right? Where it's like, we're the coaches. We know what's going on. We're your dad. We're your father. We're going to tell you exactly what to do. And the youth are coming in going, you're, this isn't working anymore. Whatever you've got going on, your old methods of coaching, is that kind of what's going on or is it more come one, come all? That's such a good question. And it's a question that <laughs> I was... don't know. No, 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 <laughs> no. It's a question that I was talking about with a current player yesterday uh-huh. and also some former players. And I think it's a myriad of different reasons. I think one of those that you just said was right. The some of the lot of the coaches that are older, sometimes they can't relate to some of these kids who don't know anything else but social media. Right. So I'm not saying that the coaches do this, but let's be real. We do have a generation in which we look at these kids and we're like, oh, you know, oh, that's all you do is you would know hard work. You know what I mean? Yeah. So don't we have that. Right. So you have that Two. 
you also have a lot of these coaches that are up there in age also demand a higher salary. Now, their salaries mm. don't touch the salary cap, but some of these older coaches, I mean, they got big salaries. So when you hire these young coaches like Mike McDonald, we don't know how much he's making, but he has a six-year deal. I would assume that he's not making the big ticket as probably Pete Carroll was, who I right. think was making like 14, 15 million a year, maybe. 14 right? or 15 so million? I, let's just, just a little guess. Oh, I so, have no idea. I think with all of these young coaches coming in, it is an opportunity to probably reset the market a little bit. Plus, he could be here for 30 years. Create a dynasty. He could be. Right? He, wait, he could be here for 46 years. 46 years. Like Big Bird. Yeah. Like Dave. Big Bird here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> See y'all. Have G a good Scott, one. Nine with Ursula. Chris is back with a choke point at 835. We finally have some data on whether fake ivy is an effective graffiti deterrent. But first, we're going to head to Olympia, where lawmakers are discussing those six big initiatives and also the issue of lewd behavior in certain night spots. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. What's uh, your first headline here, Matt? Well, good morning, Dave. Well, we're talking about those six initiatives. It's kind of outside of what the lawmakers were set to do this year, but they're so big and they're so impactful. Uh, they had a large rally yesterday on the steps to, to have lawmakers hold public hearings on these initiatives. So I thought I'd talk about that because it's a big deal. It is a really big deal uh, that's outside of the uh, legislative uh, purview that they were planning this year. Now, mm -hmm. keep in mind, the six initiatives, real quickly, was restoring police chases. Another one was to repeal the cap-and-trade law, which is a Climate Commitment Act, uh, repeal the capital gains tax, establish a parent's bill of rights, ban state and local income taxes, and allow in employees to opt out of the state's long-term health care insurance. Now, in a way, someone told me this, and I have to agree, this is how the the Republicans are legislating this year. Because they're in the minority, the Democrats control the House and the Senate and the governor's mansion. The Republicans uh, are stuck trying to get some of their bills. So the, this legislative route, uh, the initiative route, uh, is having tremendous Republican support. Now, every time the Secretary of State certifies the enough signatures... Uh, that came into their office to put an initiative on the ballot, he sends a letter to the respective chambers. Now, six times, uh, at least in the House that I saw, a Republican stands up on the floor and gives their pitch for the hearing. Here's Republican Representative Mike Steele. It clearly states that this initiative should take precedent over all other legislative matters. I don't think that's left up for interpretation, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, over 400,000 individual citizens in Washington State have sent a very clear message to this legislature. Deal with this initiative and do it in front of everything else. So the Democrats have been kind of quiet about all this. They, they've said, no, we don't want to have these. Uh, but finally this week, the Democratic leadership responded to several questions by reporters. Why not hold the hearings? And now we have maybe some answers. You may agree with them or not. Here's House Majority Leader Democrat Joe Fitzgibbon of Seattle. 
you know, the truth is we've been spending a lot of time talking internally about what do we think these initiatives do? What kind of latitude does the legislature have to consider alternatives? If we were to pursue an alternative, what could that cover? And those are just questions that we're, we're grappling with. And that's why I, um, I don't think we can give you a more clear answer. Well, the reason this comes up is because these are initiatives to the legislature as opposed to directly to the people. So the legislature would have the option of actually passing them outright on their own, correct? Correct, correct. You're absolutely right. That's what I was going to mention, that they have the right word for word. Now, if they change a word, that would be an alternative. And that's what they're talking about right now behind the scenes. That's That's what Joe Fitzgibbons is saying. I think it is accurate to say that we have not made a final decision um, on alternatives of any of the six initiatives, that we have until end of session to take those actions if we choose to, and that we have fiscal and legal questions that we are working to answer to inform those decisions. And Dave, they talked a lot about those fiscal and legal implications. Normally when they have a bill, uh, they have staff that look at what the fiscal impacts, how much money it's going to cost, as well as it's, it's legal, everything's right, the attorney general consults on that. Well, when you have an initiative sponsored by the people, there's none of that. They have to go now, that's what they're doing, is reviewing all six of these, and they're big ones, to see if it... You know, if it makes sense for the the state and and if they have an alternative, what that will be. And they have to come up with something by the end of the legislative session in, in about a month. And there's no there's no cutoff for these. They can bring these to the House and the Senate right away. So um, two of those initiatives are generating a lot of money for the state. The capital gains tax is generating nine hundred million so far. The Climate Commitment Act, which would would be repealed by the initiative. We're approaching three billion dollars by the end of this year. So there and and there's some big holes in the transportation budget that the Climate Commitment Act money would help uh, fill, $350 million just this session. Now, that would disappear if these uh, initiatives were passed. So what about filling those transportation holes with other money this year? Now, here's Fitzgibbon again. I don't think that we are likely this short session to fully resolve the challenges our transportation budget faces. So Senate Republican leader Braun suggested a six-cent increase in the gas tax instead of a de facto 55 cent um, uh, increase in the gallon of gas because of the CCA tax money on oil and gas companies. And Senator Braun is a Republican leader in the Senate. Here's what he say might be an alternative. Uh, you could replace it with about a six cent gas tax. I think most voters would say, I'll take a six cent gas tax instead of a 55 cent gas tax. And by the way, that money will go to roads and bridges. I don't think that's a deal most folks would walk by. I think they'd be interested in that. I don't know. The thing is, the gas tax, of course, because of all the electric vehicles and better mileage is not uh, uh, generating enough money. And this will be covered, I'm pretty sure, when the campaign season begins in earnest. Um, People are going to see that you're going to have a choice between either letting the state collect these taxes or, or watching your freeways continue to deteriorate. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It will be talked throughout the rest of the year, and there'll be some lobbying um, by, obviously, the Democrats to say all these initiatives are bad for our state. So, Dave, I also want to talk about lewd laws, which has kind of come up. You know, we've been talking about the compliance visits on these four LGBTQ bars in Seattle over the weekend, and it's prompted an interesting discussion and maybe future action by the legislature on the state lewd laws. Now, owners of the bars are accusing enforcement officers 
with the Liquor Contro- uh, Cannabis Board of Targeted Enforcement because the bars cater to an LGBTQ plus lifestyle. Now, David Postman, chair of the LCB, said yesterday the visits were routine in nature, not raised. Now, according to Shonda Brady, the LCB's director of enforcement, two LCB officers joined uh, members of the JET team. That's the city's code enforcement team on 10 visits in Seattle on Friday night. Sports venues, food vendors, hookah lounges, and two known LGBTQ plus venues. There were violations observed at seven of the 10 locations. The violations included permit violations, liquor violations, safety violations, youth access violations, and lewd conduct violations. And I'm going to skip right down, Dave, to the next bite where she talks about what is lewd conduct. It's the rule in the state of Washington that states employees at licensed locations are not allowed to be unclothed and identifies parts of the body that must be covered. It also defines behavior liquor licensees cannot allow or encourage patrons to participate in, typically sexual conduct. And yesterday, people lined up to uh, complain to the Liquor Cannabis Board, like Terrace Hecker, during a meeting. You went in with guns blazing, ready to write tickets for anything, and then when you didn't find any violations, you went off on jockstrap. That is unacceptable. Wait a minute, guns blazing? There were no shots fired. <laughs> well, he's testifying in what okay. he saw. All right, so finally, Dave, and I'm going to remember the last soundbite. Okay. Um, uh, there was a discussion about changes that maybe they need to go to the lawmakers and ask for changes to those lewd laws involving alcoholic uh, places that serve alcohol. Here's a discussion by um, board member Jim Valderdorf, and he made a very interesting comparison. You can go to the solstice parade and see individuals riding nude on their bicycles in a parade with thousands of people, including children. And yet you're right. If they stopped that bicycle and tried to go into one of our establishments, boom, it would be a lewd conduct violation. And there's something seriously wrong with that. And we have an obligation, I think, to address that. That's because of the presence of liquor. That's yeah, the whole that's difference. What, well, but the but the thing is that there's Senate Bill fifty six fourteen wrap it all up to the legislature, which would allow alcohol to be served in strip clubs, and that would cause the lewd laws to change. And so maybe some of the LCB more board members they said, hey, maybe we're going to talk to some legislators about changing laws to make it easier to serve alcohol and not have lewd conduct in a bar. Okay, Matt Markovich, thank you, Matt. You're welcome. For me, that's what means you need more alcohol. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah, a, that's but you what know what need. happens if they don't? Yeah. Is people binge drink in their cars that's or it. nearby bars and then walk it. So or either way, st- it's messy and sloppy and they're drinking. So what do you do? Do you have a bartender there yep. serving them drinks, knowing when to cut them off? Or do you allow the binge drinking to continue? Yep. Or do you ticket everybody at the solstice parade on their bikes for lewd yep. conduct? Or you could do that too. <sighs> It's time for a night at the movies for you and the kids this weekend. Kyra News Radio's Paul Holden explains. Come on, Annie. Let's go to the movies. Let's go see the stars. This weekend and all next week, you and your kids can head to the stars and enjoy some time among the stars at the Seattle Children's Film Festival. It all starts tomorrow night with the screening of Disney's WALL-E on one of the biggest screens around.
This is the 19th year of the festival, actually, and we are the largest film festival on the West Coast dedicated to children's films that families can enjoy. And this year, uh, our theme is sort of space-related, and so it's kind of sprinkled throughout the festival, but it's a very big year for us this year. We have nearly 200 films from 40 different countries, and we have uh, nearly 20 filmmakers from around the world that are traveling to the festival so that young filmmakers can actually talk to the artists uh, that made the films they just on the screen. That's Kendra Ann Sherrill, the executive director of the Seattle Children's Film Festival, and she wants everyone to remember the magic of movies. Movies are such a magical medium. Everyone has a favorite movie or a movie that made an impact on them, whether you saw it in childhood or as an adult. And it can really introduce kids to the world, to different countries and cultures and languages and uh, creativity. And the films that we show are really packaged in a very accessible, friendly, fun, safe way. Uh, so kids can see on the big screen these magical films that you, you don't find on Netflix or at the bigger theaters. These are independent films from around the world that they would never have a chance to see. And then, again, talking to the artists that made the film, it kind of connects the dots of like, oh, I can do that too. Films from Australia, Brazil, France, Korea, the United Arab Emirates, and lots more will be shown, which Cheryl hopes will burst some bubbles. We showcase so many different types of films. We have animation, live action, different types of animation, documentaries, narrative, it really sort of opens their world. Uh, and the, you know, they're from so many different countries, cultures, languages, these, it shows kids stories and perspectives that they don't really experience in their day to day life. You know, I like to say kids live in a little bubble, which is totally fine. But we like to burst that bubble a little bit to just start getting them curious um, about the world. And it's, you know, film is just such a beautiful way to do that because it's fun and it's flashy and it's magical and but it still you know introduces them to these these different concepts that you know eventually help them become uh, adults creative adults my conversation with Kendra reminded me of one of that I had while speaking with the Seattle Symphony about kids being challenged by art made for them not every story is wrapped up neatly at the end of an hour and a half so I asked Will these movies make kids think? Yes, and we we try to program and find films that will make kids think. Um, and again, like you said, it doesn't have to be a blockbuster. It doesn't have to be a perfect wrapped up story. Like we have some documentaries that you know cover some heavy topics, but it's still done in a very accessible way that kids can connect with um and some of our animations again are very colorful bright and beautiful but they're teaching really important lessons uh so yes i think it's extremely important to um again burst their bubble push them push them a little bit to start thinking more creatively and then if they want to make their own uh films telling their own stories you know it kind of inspires them as well not too long ago the concept of making a movie was daunting equipment gear actors how does one even get started now, with advancements in technology, especially our phones, I was curious how accessible filmmaking is, not just for kids, but anyone. It is so much more accessible now like you literally can pick up your phone and go make a movie and so we try to encourage kids to do that and everyone you know let them know you don't need to spend a bunch of money on a bunch of fancy equipment like if you have a story and if you have a phone or a small camera and maybe a friend or two you can go out and do that and i mean that's what i did when i was a kid and and now it's even easier. And so, uh, yeah, we're really excited that um, it just keeps getting easier and easier and more accessible. And we hope that kids keep picking up those cameras and making those movies. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. I will admit, 
I'm someone who loves going to the movies. From the big open lobby full of smells of popcorn and candy to sharing the experiences with friends and other people in the audience, the best way to experience a movie is on the big screen. And Cheryl doesn't want kids to miss out on that experience. It was such a core memory for me growing up. And I think it's really kind of sad because a lot of kiddos um, recently, you know, due to COVID and lots of other things, is they haven't been able to given the opportunity to even go to the theaters, especially the real young kiddos. And so they might not even know that that's an option. And so we're really hoping that, you know, families recognize it is a really important, you know, to physically go smell that popcorn, see it on a big screen and then experience a movie with other people like you laugh when other audience members laugh. You you cry when other audience members cries. It's really a communal experience that you can't quite get on the couch, I don't think. Uh, And so we're really hoping that people, you know, start trickling back into the theater again, because, again, such an important, magical moment. Um, And at the festival, we do have a first time certificate. So if it's your first time to the movies, you get a very special certificate. Uh, and last year we actually sold out of our uh, certificates. So uh, it's it's proving that it's working. You know, yeah. people are coming back and we're, we hope they continue to come back. The Seattle Children's Film Festival starts tomorrow. And if you need some recommendations, our opening night uh, is uh, Disney Pixar's WALL-E at the PACAR IMAX Theater at the Pacific Science Center. That will be really special. Our closing night film is a film called The Inventor. And it was actually shortlisted for the Oscars this year. And it's written and directed by Jim Capabianco, who is the writer of Ratatouille. And it's a stop motion animation film about Leonardo da Vinci. And it's beautiful. It's a big cast. It's so much fun. And then we have another film called Mountain Boy, uh, which is a beautiful film from the UAE. And it's about a young autistic boy who who is traveling across the UAE to learn more about his family. And then the final one I'll say is we do have a teen night uh, on Friday, February 9th, uh, co-presented with Teen Ticks. And so teens get in for $5. We have a a silk screening activity, a shorts program, and a feature film. And the feature film is a a documentary about homeschooled teens preparing for their first prom. So it's really um, really heartwarming. And if you're looking for more information, you can visit Children's Film Festival Seattle dot org or um, nwfilmforum.org. Paul Holden, Cairo News Radio. Let's go to the Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.